Coming out uh, is a nice relief, even though it's supposed to cloud up again and start raining through the rest of the week off and on, it's, it seems. Well, that's fine. We just need somebody to fix our roads, that's all. <laughs> so I guess we'll have to get on that when it gets dry enough to do it. Anyway, last, uh, well, let's don't go there yet. We've got uh, Purim coming up week after this next one on the 20th. And we've got a dinner planned for 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday the 20th. 6.30 p.m. for dinner. And then on Thursday, it's a two-day thing, uh, it's 6 p.m., We'll just have a get-together with finger food, uh, games, maybe some music by George, Gloria, and Brian, if we can bend their arms and persuade them to bring their instruments and so on. So uh, we'll see how that all works out. Anyway, here's also a sign-up sheet for uh, things to, to bring. The main course is beef brisket, which is provided for us. And then there's categories here that Charnel set up for for you to sign up. So we don't have 16 desserts and two veggies or vice versa. So that'll be left here on on the table for you. Well, we've been going through 1 Corinthians. And uh, last week hit as important a chapter really as there is in the Bible about... Having following that one in 12 where it talks about all kinds of different gifts we might have as humans both uh, naturally and God given helps and gifts as well uh, but he said those things are fine but the best thing he would show and we went through last week what's called the love chapter that's what it's all about and he says at the end that of the three main things that we need, faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love. And I tried to go through what Paul had said there, and he defines what love is. And I think that that is a very, very important thing for us to grasp, because it's so easy to take kind of a little Protestant view of First Corinthians 13 and and we say love and as much emotion as we can. But he shows on a practical level the things that love does, uh, which define it. And that's very, very important. In chapter 14, we get to a chapter that in some ways might have less interest to us. And yet I think there's quite a bit to be learned from it as well. <clears throat> so let's go to 14. Uh, he said the latest, the greatest thing is love in verse 13 above. But here at the start of 14, he says, follow after love. So love isn't something you just talk about. It isn't something that you uh, think is nice and wish everybody had for you. Uh, it's something you follow. Something you... What, what, how is it when you follow a baseball team or a football team or uh, a band or whatever? When you follow it, you're actively interested in it. You are interested in everything about your team or whatever it might be. So this is something that you get in line behind and follow 
what he has just said up here. And notice that in contrast to what he says next. He says, and desire spiritual gifts. It's okay to desire them. He's talked about them in chapter 12. Uh, that's, that's a right desire as long as it's not a vain or egocentric desire. Uh, to have the gifts of healing, the gifts of uh, interpreting tongues or uh, discernment of demons and so on, those are desirable gifts to have, but they're not in the same category as following after something. So he's putting it in that statement above other spiritual gifts. Because as human beings, those spiritual gifts will only be needed so long. Once the change comes, what do you need those things for? But you'll need love for every creature forevermore throughout eternity. So the fact that it is so uh, long-abiding and the thing that God lives by and we are to live by makes it something that needs to be followed carefully. Okay to desire other gifts, but they only last so long. But rather that you may speak, preach, or prophesy. Preach is a better definition of the Greek word there than prophesy is. So he says, follow love. That's a given. And then it's okay to desire spiritual gifts, but... It's more important even to be able to speak in ways that will help other people understand. Now, we're not all called to do preaching per se, but we certainly can uh, sharpen each other. Iron sharpens iron. We can talk about principles of God, principles of the Bible, encourage each other, help each other understand uh, by our own experiences and our own reading and so on. Uh, and sometimes we may speak, and we will see that that opportunity may be in the future. It isn't particularly here now. I think if you go through the New Testament, despite what some will say about First Corinthians 14, you will find that most most all the speaking in the Old Testament was done by those whom God appointed as prophets or by the priests themselves. And in the New Testament, uh, you find Paul and James and John, uh, Timothy, various ones preaching and teaching and writing letters uh, of direction and instruction to the churches. But you don't see throughout the New Testament... Uh, a lot of people during services speaking. Uh, the one case I'll, that comes immediately to mind is Paul on that night when he spoke till midnight. Uh, he didn't have 15 people giving him relief every 15 minutes uh, speaking that night. He gave the whole thing till somebody got tired and fell out of the attic <laughs> or the balcony, whatever. Leaned a little too forward to sleep, I guess, and Broke his neck or whatever happened. Killed him anyway. But that's the example you see throughout the Bible, old and new, is those whom God appoints doing the primary part of the speaking. Now, that was not the case a couple of times in the past and once in the future, uh, which we'll have a look at here in a little bit. 
somebody says preaching that others might understand is more important than even some of the spiritual gifts that he mentioned in chapter 12. For he that speaks in an unknown tongue or language speaks not to men but to God. A tongue, uh, we still use that term, tongue, to speak of other languages, but for the most part, we speak of languages today. It's a more modern uh, word that tends to be, but we we do sometimes speak of the tongue. Uh, Spanish uses the term la lengua, uh, speaking of the tongue or the language, but even that, I think, probably has its root in language, lengua. Uh, I don't know that, but it probably does. Now, what happened there in Acts 2? Uh, There was a great miracle of fire coming down and so on from God, and then men began to speak in other languages. There were people there gathered who lived in all different parts of the world who spoke different languages, and they could all understand each other. And those who didn't understand Peter and James and John's language... Uh, understood in their own language what was being said. So it was indeed a miracle that occurred there that everybody could understand. Now, that's the point. Everybody could understand. Now, the only ones that I know of that use what they call tongues in any major way is the uh, Pentecostal movement, a so-called branch of Christianity. Uh, But they basically speak gibberish, and nobody understands what's being said. They roll on the floor, they foam at the mouth, they speak with all kinds of weird noises. Uh, as a boy, I remember my cousin and I creeping up to the window of one one time uh, just to kind of see what was going on, and it was utter chaos in there. Uh, nobody could understand anything that was being said, and they were all speaking out at once, and when the Spirit moved them, Uh, they would begin to gyrate and yell and scream and speak gibberish and roll on the floor and all kinds of stuff. Not as good as Barnum and Bailey, maybe, but close. Uh, But weird at the same time. We didn't go back. That was enough for us. But what they're doing is giving themselves over to demons. They're just simply turning themselves over to Satan. And Satan is the author of confusion, not God. So we need to separate the Pentecostal movement completely from our mind when we begin to talk about this chapter. Because if the Pentecostal movement and their gibberish and their chaos is what's in your mind, then it's hard to understand the chapter. But if you know what Paul is talking about and what has happened and did happen in Acts 2, where they simply spoke in languages that everybody could understand and God gave, through a miracle, the capacity to both hear and to understand. Now, you may know five or six different languages if you've studied a lot or were around in a place where there were several spoken and nobody else can understand. Now, if I 
decided that it was worthwhile, maybe I could start studying Chinese and I could learn Chinese real well. Doubtful, but maybe. And I came to you and, and I was so proud that I had learned Chinese that I gave you sermons in Chinese. Now, how much good would that do you? None whatever. So he's, he's beginning this by saying, whatever occurs in the context of this chapter has to be something that people can profit by. It has to be something that can be understood. Therefore, the Pentecostal movement has nothing to do with this chapter. They identify with it, but we should not identify them with this chapter. We should identify them with satanic practices. Demonism is what they are doing. So it has nothing to do with Paul's instruction to the church of God. So let's separate that completely in our minds, and then we can better understand what he's talking about here. So he says, He that speaks in an unknown language speaks not to men, but to God. Now, God understands all languages. So if you speak Chinese or Swahili or something, uh, God will understand you, but chances are there aren't many people around you unless you're in an American national park now will understand you when you speak Chinese. Uh, it's, it doesn't do anybody any good. And he says that. For no man understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. Well, he may have the Spirit of God, and he may be speaking, but it's a mystery to you what he's saying. What's the old expression we, we used to have? It's... Uh, Somebody's saying something. It's all... What's the language we use in that common expression? It's all Greek to me, we'll say. Common expression. It's all Greek to me. In other words, I don't get it at all. So he's speaking in a mystery. Nobody understands. That's what a mystery is. It's something that you don't understand. And then a mystery novel or a mystery movie... They work it out so you can understand at the end. But through it, you don't know who done it. So when you're speaking in a foreign language, nobody knows who done it, who they were, or what they were even doing. So it's a mystery. It isn't like they're speaking some great mysterious thing. It's just that whatever they're saying, it's a mystery to you. So he says, God can understand that language, but you can't. And what good does it do if you don't understand it? There's three. But he that preaches speaks to men to edification and exhortation and comfort. Now, that's what we do here. We speak English. You all speak English. So, that can be used to edify, to exhort, and to comfort. Three very, very important things. Edification means to expand the knowledge, to help people understand better what they need to be doing and how to do it. Exhortation means now that you've been taught, get busy doing it. You exhort someone to better works or to do something. And also comfort. Where do we find comfort? In the scriptures of God where it says Christ will never forsake us 
never leave us. Uh, that if we will do what we're supposed to do, we can have life eternal. Uh, there's an awful lot of comfort in the scriptures. <clears throat> Sometimes when we need comfort, all we need to do is turn to the Psalms and read the comforting things that David said about his relationship with God, and it comforts us too. So, if you're going to speak or preach, he says, do it so that it helps somebody. Now, he that speaks in an unknown language edifies himself, and that's all, because he's the only one who can understand it. So what good does that do? You just jabber on, and you're the only one that knows what you're saying. I don't think you'll find too many people who will hang around and listen to you either. If you just go on and on in Russian, and they don't know it, they're, well, that's enough of that. But he that preaches edifies the church, because he will do it in a language that they understand. I think, as we look at this chapter, there is as much in here about simply using the language that people know as there is about miracles. Now, part of it does seem to indicate miracles, so I'm not going to say that that is not in here, because I believe it is. And that was certainly a miracle in Acts 2, when all these people understood it was both a miracle of hearing and a miracle of speaking. Uh, this guy didn't know Arabian, but he could speak it suddenly. And this guy didn't know Greek, but he could understand it suddenly. So, whoever was speaking in whatever language that he hadn't known, everybody else could also understand that same language by hearing. So it had to be both a miracle of what you did say or could say in a language you didn't know, and also hearing a language that you didn't know. So it was not a ma uh, just a matter of speaking in tongues, it was a matter of hearing tongues as well. And I don't ever hear the product, the uh, uh, Pentecostals talk about hearing in tongues. They talk about speaking in tongues. And where they get off is the ego of the gibberish that they're saying. But nobody can understand it. So where is the miracle of Acts 2? It's not there. Because nobody gets it. They don't have the miracle of hearing now, if they could speak that gibberish and everybody in the room could understand what they were saying, it might be profitable. But even that, I doubt, A, God isn't in it, and B, it's the mutterings of demons, and therefore you're not going to be edified by it anyhow. I mean, even if you could understand it, it would be things that were ungodly that were being said. So what good would that do anybody? It would do more harm than good. So, if you speak in a different language, you only edify yourself, but if you preach in their language, then you edify the church. He says, I would that you all spoke with tongues. Now, he's not saying it's a great thing to have. He said, it'd be okay by me if you all did, did it. Now, he's already told us the things that are more important and the thing to follow, but here he scales that back some and says, 
That'd be okay. I wish you all could do it. But rather, here's something more important then. Rather that you preached. For greater is he that preaches than that he, speaks, he that speaks with tongues. Tell that to a Pentecostal. He doesn't believe that verse. He thinks speaking in tongues is the greatest thing you can do. But he doesn't speak in languages. He speaks in gibberish. So it doesn't apply at all. Here we're talking about a church congregation. And what would help it and what would not help it. And we're just talking about languages. Verse 6. Now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with languages, what shall I profit you? <coughs> Except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine. If I can't say those things to you in a language you can understand... He says, what good does it do for me to even come? And even things without life give sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? <clears throat> you can play the piano. You know, I can play the piano. Well, let me put that differently. I can play with a piano. I can go over there. I could demonstrate if you'd like. I could go over there and start banging keys. And it would be gibberish, and no one would understand at all what I was playing. There would be no distinction of sounds, see? So he says, when you speak in tongues, there has to be a distinction of sounds. Otherwise, nobody knows. Now, my piano playing would be somewhat akin, I guess, to rock music. Nobody knows what in the world's going on. It's just clamor. It's just noise. So if you're going to play music that can be understood and people can equate to, maybe even know the words to and sing like we do when the piano is played and we sing a hymn, we sing a psalm. Because the psalm has been set to music. So there is a direct distinction in the sound that we can all recognize and follow. Now, that does us some good, doesn't it? And it is truly music. It does what? It edifies, it exhorts, and it comforts. Good music will do that. Now, the world calls their rock music music. But we could, instead of singing hymns, we could put that on here and play it loudly for everybody before we start a service. And no one would probably understand the words, and they certainly wouldn't get the sounds. It would just be noise. And there would be no edification, no exhortation, no comfort. Basically just a desire to sin against God is all that would come out of it. Because that's what rock music is all about. is some kind of sin, drugs, sex, whatever. So there's no point there. It has to have a point. So, whether it be pipe or harp, you need to be able to play it so it will be known what is piped or harped. It has to have meaning, just like words do. Uses another example. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, 
Who shall prepare himself to the battle? They had a certain thing they played that caused people to assemble to fight. There was an enemy approaching. It was a sound to arms. In the military, they use, they play Reveille. Well, when Reveille starts in the morning, everybody knows what that is. It's a distinctive sound that they hear every morning in hate. But it's a distinctive sound. It means something. So, he says, there's also a sound of a trumpet for war. And when you hear that sound, you grab your weapons and your armor, and you head out to battle because that's what was played. Now, somebody just grabs a trumpet and starts blowing on it and doesn't play that tune, you don't know what to do. It's an uncertain sound, and you don't know whether to get up or lay down or go fight or have lunch because it doesn't mean anything to you. He says, when you speak in languages, it needs to mean something. If it doesn't mean anything, it isn't a miracle from God. And it isn't even something worth doing. Verse 9. So likewise you, except you utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For you simply speak into the air. It doesn't go into an ear and mean anything. It's just noise in the air. It means nothing. Now, even with English, you can do such a thing. Herbert Armstrong always taught us to try to speak basically on a third to sixth grade level. He, he used that, that age range. To use words that somebody with a third grade or sixth grade under education could understand. Now you can study the dictionary and you can read encyclopedias and scientific journals and you can learn all kinds of six syllable words. But if you use them in a sermon, nobody understands what you're talking about. I have found over the years that there are certain words that I use once in a while that just come to mind that I happen to know. And somebody will say, what does that mean? And sometimes it's a very simple word that I thought everybody knew. But they didn't. <laughs> what does that mean? I used to have somebody ask me that pretty often. And they had a high school education, were reasonably intelligent, but just didn't have uh, a very wide vocabulary and understanding of words. They just grew up in a simple family. Anything with three syllables and above, what's that? <coughs> so what good does it do to use four-bit words? None. Ego, maybe. But uh, when people get pedantic and start trying to show off the words they know, it doesn't profit anybody. It doesn't mean anything. So, he says, speak with words easy to be understood. That would mean, A, easy words in the language they know, or if it's a gift of tongues or languages, words that are easy to understand in that language. 
You can't understand anything a Pentecostal so-called under the Spirit is, under the demon. Because that's exactly what it is. <coughs> it does not conform to this whatsoever. Verse 10, <clears throat> there are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. A lot of different voices, tongues, languages in the world. And they're all significant. There's a certain amount of people that speak any language. And God caused the languages to be confused at the Tower of Babel. Uh, there was only one language up to that point. And then suddenly, people started speaking different languages. And what did they do? They separated. They joined up with those who were speaking the same language they were. And they moved off away from these other people who were speaking something they couldn't understand. It was a beautiful thing God did. He gave the gift of languages at the Tower of Babel. Now, they didn't consider it a gift. They considered it a curse. And they got away from anybody that didn't speak their languages or their languages. How many languages did God create there and put in the minds of people? Once in a while, somebody goes in a coma, and when they wake up, they speak a different language. That's happened a few times. Uh, it's a mystery, I suppose, and maybe there's some demonism involved, I don't know. But uh, those things occasionally happen. Well, at the Tower of Babel, God just simply had X number of languages that he wanted to be on the earth, and he gave this language to this many this language to that many, and he did it partially by race, and even within the races, they had different languages. So, these people that spoke this went here. These that spoke that went there. And they quit building a city to replace God. So, he used language in a very, very powerful, wonderful thing in Acts 2, there was a gift from God to help people, and he used <clears throat> language in that sense as a curse to keep people from continuing to disobey God and having to be destroyed again like they had in the flood just a few years before that. So he can do it either way. He created that confusion for a purpose, but that isn't his normal way of working. Now, let's see, where was I here? <clears throat> uh, verse 11, Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I'll be unto him that speaks as a barbarian. And he that speaks to me shall be a barbarian to me. I've tried to speak to people that have a different language, and it's frustrating. You, you're, you are like barbarians to each other, you see. He can't understand anything you say. So you do a few signs with your hands to try to emphasize it. And I found sometimes when I don't understand or they don't understand me, I try to talk louder as if that'll help. <laughs> you know, if I just say it louder, maybe you'll get it. No, it still doesn't get it. Doesn't make a bit of difference. So, speaking different languages doesn't do any good unless you understand each other. 
Even so you, for as much as you are zealous or desirous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to edify the church. You don't need gifts of different languages, say, just for the sake of the ego or the vanity or whatever of speaking different languages. Whatever is done, he says, needs to be done to help the church. Anything else is just vanity and ego. So, yeah, you can desire spiritual gifts, but be sure what you're speaking will be of value to others. Wherefore, let him that speaks in an unknown language pray that he may interpret. So, this might be somebody that actually just their native language might be Portuguese. Okay, so you come to the congregation and you speak Portuguese. He says, if you're going to do that, pray that you be given the gift to interpret it. And if you can interpret it, then why do you need it in the first place? <laughs> I mean, if you can speak English, just speak English. This isn't all about a great miracle of languages, although that has been done, as I said, at, Bab at uh, Babel and in Acts 2, and we'll get to another one in a little bit. Verse 14, For if I pray in an unknown language, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now, Nelson gave the opening prayer a while ago, and I understood what he said, and I appreciated it, and it fit what we're doing, and uh, he was asking God's blessing on the service, and uh, I'm edified and comforted by that. That was good. I understood it. If he had come up here and said it in Greek, I wouldn't have had a clue. He wouldn't have either. So, yeah, I try once in a while, I've prayed in Spanish. I hope God understood it, because I don't speak that good of Spanish. But to me, to pray in Spanish once in a while, I have to use simple language, and I have to use simple words, and it makes me stop and think about what I'm praying to to better clarify and understand, and it can be helpful to me to pray in a language that I don't know much of, because it makes me think more instead of just spouting words in a language that I know. I have to think, now what does that mean? And I want to be sure I get the meaning that I have in my heart across to God. So a prayer in a different language can be helpful to me, but if it's in a different language, it's not helpful to anybody else if it's a public prayer. So he says, yeah, it's okay to speak in a foreign language and even to pray in it. But nobody understands it. It didn't do them any good. Verse 15. What is it then? What, what are we talking about then, he says? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. 
He says, this, this is the bottom line here. If you're going to do it, sing, speak, do it in an understandable way. That's the whole point, the whole purpose here. That's what was Acts 2 was all about, was a miracle so that everybody could speak and could hear and understand. And that never happens in a Pentecostal meeting. It's not what it's about. It has nothing to do with this chapter. Because he says this is the way it has to be. That way it, it means something. Now they do opera in Italian most of the time. And if I know the words in English, the Italian can be a beautiful romantic language. But if I don't know the words, it doesn't do me much good. What good does it do if the fat lady sings if you can't understand what the fat lady says? <laughs> you know? And that's, then it's over. It's over for me when they start if I don't understand it. That's what he's saying here. Verse 16. Else, when you shall bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupies the room of the unlearned say amen at your giving of thanks? Seeing he understands not what you say. Like I said, if Nelson had given that prayer in Portuguese or something, I wouldn't have said amen. Amen means so be it, or I agree with that, or that's the way it should be. And if, it, if, he, if I have no clue what he said, I'm not about to say amen. And he mentions that specifically. Verse 17, for you truly give thanks well, but the other is not edified. You understand Portuguese, you say it in Portuguese, you got it, but nobody else did. <clears throat> I thank my God I speak with tongues more than all of you. Now, I don't think he's talking of miracles there. Paul was a very highly educated man, and he probably spoke quite a few languages. So I said, I thank God that I speak more languages than any of you. Uh, you. You can't be bragging about the languages you speak to me because I know more than you do. <clears throat> now, that does not sound in context like he's talking about a miracle of speaking and hearing such as we saw in Acts 2. He's merely talking here to people about when they get together, they need to all speak so everybody can understand. And Corinth was a mishmash of different uh, races and peoples and languages. So somebody said, boy, I want to preach. I'm going to tell them in Arabic what I think. Well, that doesn't do them any good. So he's not talking here just about a, a gift of specific languages that are a miracle at the moment, but of language in general, of different tongues that you might or might not speak. I speak with more languages than all of you, he says. Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in a strange language. What good would that do? What good does it do when the Pentecostals speak their gibberish and roll on the floor? All it does 
is tweak their ego. Because this demon spirit took over and caused them to do crazy things and speak weird, crazy sounds. And that to them is the spirit of God. And therefore, if you can do that, then you're looked upon, looked highly upon by the rest of the congregation because you could roll on the floor and get your clothes dirty and, and kick chairs over. But it didn't edify anybody. So, 10,000 words in a strange language does no good. Verse 20, Brethren, be not children in understanding. You think that speaking in languages or a specific gift or miracle of speaking in languages is important. He says, no, understanding is what's important. Howbeit, in malice be you children, but in understanding be men. That's a very important spiritual principle there. Uh, that's always been a scripture I liked. With malice, with evil imagination, with evil thinking, with gossip, with sin, be like little children. Better to be naive. Better to not understand. Better to have limited, a limited grasp of what the world is than to be highly knowledgeable in malice and sin of any kind. But when it comes to understanding, be men, not children. Be grown up, be mature. So this whole chapter really is about speaking in a way that promotes understanding. Not vanity over languages. Verse 21, In the law it is written, With men of other languages and other lips will I speak to this people. And yet for all that will they not hear me, says the Eternal. So, he says, he mentions, let's see, where is, where is that uh, that he's speaking from? Does it really matter? Uh, God can speak to you in different languages. He can make you understand those. But it wouldn't do any good if you didn't hear him. So, what difference does it make? I went to Kenya, specifically, and they couldn't understand a word I said, most of them. A few could, but most of them couldn't. Now, what good would that have done if I hadn't had somebody to sit there and speak their language and interpret what I had to say? Would have done them no good whatsoever. I don't know they did them a whole lot of good anyway because they were mostly there for handouts. They weren't there really for the Word of God, but those things you learn. But if they don't hear you, what good does it do? Verse 22, Wherefore, languages are for a sign not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. God would give that kind of miracle so that people who didn't know and understand might believe. Now, in a Pentecostal church, <clears throat> you got this congregation, 
and they're all there, and they know each other, and they believe, as they put it, and they speak it in tongues. And yet, he says here, the speaking in tongues is for unbelievers. It is a miracle he gives for believers, in particular. Now, there were believers gathered in Acts 2, right? The apostles and the 120 total. But there were also there people from other places who had gathered at the temple, who had different languages, and they probably weren't paying a whole lot of attention to Peter and the others until cloven fires, tongues of fire came. Now that was a signal for unbelievers. All those languages that suddenly were spoken, people began to marvel at and wonder why. I guess they're just drunk, some said. Others said, well, I don't know. What does that mean? Well, what happened as a result? 5,000 converted one day, 3,000 the next day. It was a sign more to unbelievers than it was to the apostles in the 120. That's who it had an effect on the most. And the miracles that went with it and followed it. So it's it's a sign not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Now we're going to I was going to quote Acts I mean uh, Joel two here, and maybe I will. Let's go back there just for a moment. In the latter part of that chapter. Because God is going to do this thing again, in a way that he did it there in Acts 2. And when Peter saw what was happening in Acts 2, he immediately thought of Joel 2, as I've said before, because he thought the end was there, and that what he had read back here was indeed happening. And in type, and in a smaller way, it was. But he's talking to the church earlier in the chapter, and telling them to turn to him with their whole hearts, and pray and fast and so on, uh, because he is going to turn when we turn our attitudes and bless us and give the former and latter rain uh, in the first month and so on, and that there will be great blessings involved in that. Down in verse 28, though, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, now, he's talking specifically to the church above when he says, I'm going to start blessing you. Then down here, <coughs> he'll pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy or preach uh, or speak. Not preaching in terms of, uh, of what I'm doing right now because it says the women are to keep silence in the church. But they will... They will say things that God puts in their minds. <coughs> All flesh, not just the men, not just the ministry. Your sons and daughters shall speak. Might be a word here to use. Speakers. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. This is going to be the whole congregation. Okay? And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. 
Now, is this for the believers or for the unbelievers? The believers are blessed, the first part of the chapter. End of the chapter, he pours it out on the whole congregation, and it comes out as signs and wonders. But there's something important happening here, just like it was in Acts 2. Something important's going on. Ah, they're just drunk. No, I think there's more going on than that. So God is going to pour out some gifts here that we today have no knowledge of and don't do, and it hasn't happened yet. But it is going to, and it's going to be fairly soon, because he says, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. So just prior to all these things happening, he's going to do this with the church. Well, what is the point at that, at that point? The point is, you have two who will be commissioned to go out and preach it to the world. The whole world. And they will point to these people who are having dreams and languages and all kinds of things happening and say, that is of God. That isn't Pentecostal. That's understandable. And it is there for a benefit to the unbeliever, not to the believer. The believer got his benefit up there the beginning, with all these blessings that begin to come. So what is given there at the end is for the world to understand, for the world to see and stand back in wonder. Just as it was in Acts 2. So, Acts, uh, Acts 2 and Joel 2 and even what was going on in Corinth, not long after the New Testament church started, was basically for unbelievers. The miracles, the 40-year-old that we read about in Acts the other night, who was healed at the gate of the temple, it was for unbelievers, was what that was done. And God had made that man lame from birth just for that purpose. And oh, how happy he was. But it was done more for those who stood around. Okay. Preaching serves not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. All these things you and I understand, we understand, and how did we come to understand it? From preaching. Whether it was Herbert Armstrong or Ted Armstrong on the radio or TV or whether it was in booklets written or not, uh, we came to understand from what God had taught others. So that's what it's all about. Verse 23, If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with languages, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, Will they not say that you are mad? Now, if you go into a party at a hotel somewhere, and everybody there is speaking a different language, there will be utter confusion, and you say, this is crazy. Well, he uses the term mad here. We'd say probably say crazy. This is crazy. What are, what are all these people doing here? They don't understand each other. They're all jabbering away in a different language. What good is that? Doesn't do anybody any good. 
But if all preach, and there comes in one that believes not, or one unlearned, he is convicted of all, he is judged of all. In other words, everybody can understand, he can understand. So anytime there's use of languages, the purpose should be for understanding. That they might grasp and know important things. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. He, he wants to tell what's in his heart and his mind. Well, if he says it in a language people can understand, then there's some benefit there. If he tells you that he's all heartbroken and he wants to repent and everything, and he does it in a Swahili, it doesn't do anybody any good. So the secrets of the heart need to be made manifest if tongues are used. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. He hears the truth. He understands it. He's there. He needs something. <coughs> the desires of his heart, the secrets of his heart. He needs something. And if he can understand what you're saying, then he'll fall on his face and worship God because he knows he's hearing the truth. I've experienced that many times when I was working with large numbers of people and going and seeing new people all the time. They were just enthralled by every word that came out of your mouth because their mind had been open to truth and it was exciting to them, whatever the subject was, to hear it, unless it was third time. You know, but generally speaking, they wanted to hear the truth. And it was exciting. And then they wanted to go tell everybody else and everybody they told through rocks out. Just the way it was. If that heart is there and it has its secrets of wanting to know. God says, seek and you'll find. So here comes somebody seeking truth and you speak to him in Pakistani. He ain't going to learn truth. Won't do him any good. Go to a Pentecostal church, sit on the back row, you won't learn a thing. Except that this is a place you don't want to be. It's all you'll learn. <clears throat> How is it then, brethren? Now, there was a problem here. How is it then, with this explanation, when you come together, every one of you has a psalm, every one a doctrine, every one a language, every one a revelation, or an interpretation. Let all things done be done unto edifying. So he's saying here that when, when you people have been coming together to meet, every one of you thinks he has something special. He has something more special than anybody else. So when you all get together, this one wants to sing, this one wants to preach, this one wants to interpret, this one wants to do something else. <clears throat> he's going to say here in a little bit that that's confusion. You're not there to impress each other by this new doctrine you learned or this new language or a special revelation from God or whatever it might be. He says, how is it that it's this way when you come together? Then he gives instruction. If any man speak in an unknown language, let it be by two or at the most by three and that, one at a time, and let one interpret. 
So he says, anything that you do there, when you come together, is to be done so that everybody can understand. It's not there for vanity. And he says, you can't all come with a special song in your heart that you want to share, or whatever it is. He says, when you come, speak two, and at the most, three, at any one given meeting. Now, we adopted over, Herbert Armstrong did years ago, basically the two speak, and that seems to be uh, what Paul is trying to say. Let it be by two, or at the absolute most, by three. So we had a sermonette and a sermon. Some of the Protestant churches kind of do that. Uh, most of them just have a sermonette, though, instead of a sermonette or a sermon. But uh, he limits it here. Well, how did the Pentecostals get off with everybody yelling and screaming all over the hall? doesn't fit this chapter at all. And then, do it one at a time, only one speaking, and then have somebody to interpret if it's in a different tongue. Just like when I went to Kenya. I was the only one speaking and had an interpreter. Now, if a Kenyan came over here, uh, he'd need, if he were to sit here and speak, he'd need somebody to interpret or it wouldn't do you a bit of good, I guarantee you. So he says, that's the only way that language is to be used, is so that everybody understands. But if there be no interpreter, tell him to shut up. Well, that isn't exactly what it said, but basically. If there is no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church. So if you come bragging about your languages and your tongues, uh, A, only one speak at a time, and B, if you have an interpreter, fine, so everybody knows. But if you don't have an interpreter, keep quiet. And let him speak to himself and to God. <laughs> He has some different language. He can use that language in his thoughts. He can talk to God in his mind, but don't let him speak to the people. And even with the prophets, verse 29, let the prophets speak two or three, and let everybody else sit back and listen to and digest or judge what is said, whether it be good or bad or whatever. Only two or three. If anything be revealed to another that sits by, let the first hold his peace. Now, they had all been accustomed to everybody coming in and doing his own thing, uh, as it says back in verse 26. So he said, we won't have any of that. Now, if somebody's sitting there and they have something that comes to their mind or God reveals something to them, uh, whoever speaking, hold his peace. For you may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. <clears throat> now, does that mean if you've got a congregation of 400, you march up one by one till everybody speaks? No, he's already said, limit it to two or three in any one service. But there might be a time for anybody 
to say something. Now, that isn't normal. That isn't the normal situation. Uh, that happened in Acts 2, when everybody started talking and hearing in a language they could understand, their own language. That will happen in Joel 2. I was going to go there when I got to this point in this chapter. Because there, God is going to be giving special information or visions or dreams to young girls and young boys and women and men and even handmaidens and servants will be given something. Now, that has to be handled in a uh, proper way. Just like here, if that was still going on in the church to, to a degree, when this was addressed, it had to be done decently and in order. So, we'll face the same thing. We don't have to deal with it today, because the only place that languages being, uh, unknown languages or so on are being given is nowhere. Nowhere in the church that I know of at the moment. And never has been in the New Testament era beyond probably what Paul is talking about right here. Certainly not in the end of the age. We've had to have interpreters wherever we go around the world. So God has not given this gift to the end time church yet. But I do believe he's going to give it at the time Joel 2 speaks of. And people will be coming from all over the world who don't know English. And a gift of tongues will be needed. And if he starts pouring out his spirit on members and members' children, and they have something to relate or to say, maybe a young girl comes and says, I had a dream last night. So she would be asked to tell us the dream. She wouldn't be preaching. She wouldn't be trying to edify the church in terms of teaching doctrine or whatever. She would be relating a story that came to her in a dream that God had given. And that others could uh, think about, analyze, or help understand what had been dreamed. Or a vision. I had a vision. Well, if those things are coming from God, and it says they will, then we have to understand how to handle it. 1 Corinthians 14 doesn't mean much to you and me today. Right? But it will have great meaning for us when Joel 2 comes to pass. Just like it did when Acts 2 came to pass. So we will need this chapter very badly at that point. Very desperately, let's say. In order to know how to handle what is happening when God does it. Now, he may have been doing it to some degree, still, there even in Corinth. I don't know. But the way Paul addresses it is that, hey, well, let's use language so everybody understands, and let's not have too many talking, and limited it to two or three. But if somebody has had a vision or a dream, and whatever is being spoken maybe causes that to come to their mind, and they would like to relate it, and they say, hey... Can I tell this dream I had? And you say, okay, come on up and do it. I'll keep, I'll shut up. Tell it to us. 
I don't think that violates what Paul says about women keeping silence in the church here about three verses down from this. Because it will be something that is different and something that is special, but it won't be a matter of teaching doctrine or exhorting or anything else. It will be simply a matter of relating what God has given that individual. Uh, At least that's the way I would understand it at this point, considering how Paul says to handle such things. Uh, And you may all speak one by one. Well, if the miracle of Joel 2 occurs, and the young men and young women and old and both sexes and so on uh, have something that God has given, then one by one, we'll all hear it. He, he allows for that here. Uh, let's see. Yeah, one by one in verse 31. Verse 32, then, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Not just here in Corinth, but everywhere, he says. God doesn't want any confusion. He wants peace. And when you get everybody shouting, you have confusion and you don't have peace. We've had a few meetings here where everybody decided that they had something to say and wanted to get it said and had some yelling and shouting going on and it wasn't peaceful and it was confusing. Uh, So whether it's in the church or in a business meeting, it doesn't matter. God is not the author of confusion. So when these miracles start happening again, and they will, we need to come back here and follow this the way Paul said do it when these things happen. Whether it's just foreign languages, or whether it's some special gift of hearing, or whatever. However it comes. So God doesn't want any confusion, and he wants peace. And then he says, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted to them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience, as also says the law. So they are not to formally speak. That doesn't mean that women have to come into the hall and not say anything. Uh, They can can visit, they can talk, but they're not to be put in a position to teach or to preach. Now that is the rule, as says the law. They're to be under obedience and under their head, their husband. They're not to teach. They're not to propound doctrine. They're not to be given that uh, job or opportunity. If they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is a shame for women to speak in the church in any kind of a formal or teaching way. It's a shame, God says. But we have women evangelists and so on in the Protestant world today, uh, on TV and everywhere, women preaching. And I've even heard people say, well, I listen to such and such a woman every once in a while. No. No, God commands specifically the women not preach. So if you have a woman on TV or the radio that preaches... She's violating God's law. And you shouldn't be listening to anybody who's violating God's law 
in what they're doing. Because he says very clearly here, that is not to happen. Shouldn't listen to any Protestant preachers for that matter, but women, uh, it's, it's a double whammy. Let them learn from their husbands at home. That way we don't have the confusion. Now there is, above that, uh, everybody can speak one by one, and I think that that is referring to Joel too, that that will occur. Visions and dreams. Well, what good does it do to have the vision or the dream if you don't tell it to anybody? If you just keep it to yourself? No, it's meant to be told. Maybe not specifically in a church service, but everybody gets together because this is an exciting time. And, uh, you know, we every morning maybe we'll run to a gathering place or to the hall because we don't know who's been given what overnight. So it won't be a church service particularly, I don't think. It'll be that God will be giving visions and dreams and things to both sexes, young and old. And we'll all be interested in what they have to say. So we might get together and have breakfast every morning together. <laughs> you know, I don't know exactly how this will work. But it's, it's, but it's a specific thing to show signs and wonders to the world, not to us. We don't need that. We have the Spirit of God. Okay, verse 36 then. What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it to you only? He's saying, now, wait a minute. You're all coming here, you all have something to say. Where did you learn the truth? You learned it because somebody else taught it to you. It didn't come from you. It didn't come from me. Now, I teach a lot, and I've preached a lot in the last 53 years. But it didn't come to me. I remember listening to the radio and barely hear it over XELO and XEG in the early 50s. It came to us. It came from the Plain Truth magazine. It didn't come from my uncle. didn't come from my parents. didn't come from me. It came from God through Herbert Armstrong. That's where it came from. Because he revealed it to him. So he says... You guys are getting it all backwards. You think that you were the one that God gave the truth to. No, it came to you. He says, let's get this thing straight. Don't get the cart before the horse here. Or suddenly think that you're so important that uh, you're the source of all truth. And some people get that way. And then he comments about that. If any man think himself to be a prophet preacher or spiritual let him acknowledge that the things that I write to you are the commandments of the eternal there are a lot of people now who are presumptuous self appointed preachers in the church of God or allegedly in the church of God only God knows who is and who really isn't but they have decided to take it upon themselves to be a prophet or a preacher or to proclaim that they certainly are more spiritual than us and therefore should be teaching us. we got the same thing going on. But he says, 
make that person acknowledge that what I'm telling you here in this chapter are the commandments of God. Women aren't to speak at all, and men are only to speak two and at the most three in any one session. And they had better speak in a language that can either be understood or someone there to interpret it if they can't. So he's laying down the law. And self-styled preachers are hit specifically here. Wherefore, brethren, covet to speak or to preach, and forbid not to speak with tongues. So he says, he's already said earlier that preaching or teaching in a way that everybody can understand is important, but that it be limited and no confusion. Uh, so that is good. And that's something we should desire, is good teaching, teaching ability. And he says, forbid not to speak with tongues. Now what, what that is saying is, I'm not promoting it. You shouldn't promote it. But don't forbid it if God provides it. So tongues is not one of the greater gifts. It isn't something to be coveted or desired particularly. It's simply something that helps people understand. So he says, preaching and teaching in an understandable way is something to desire. But tongues, eh, don't forbid it. If it happens, it happens. And we may have some of that at the end. It's not something we should all seek, but it's something that may need to be done in order for people to understand. That's what it's all about. And then he says... The final word, let all things be done decently and in order. An order of things. Uh, so even with the exception up here, when someone is moved and says, hey, can I say this? Uh, that isn't the normal way. The normal way is no confusion, no more than two on the outside three speak at all and everything done decently and in order that everybody might edify that they might uh, what, what, did, what did he say up there uh, be comforted be edified and understand that's the whole point so he says if, that, if you're not accomplishing that then you don't need tongues so do everything according to what I'm saying here or don't do it at all. We don't need this much now. Well, we do in terms of general order. But I think we will need it in the future. So kind of keep it in the back of your mind as somewhere to look when you see, when you see Joel 2 happening.